We are going to finish the book of Hebrews this morning, which, including our study through Genesis, is, I don't think it's, it's well, it's over a year. Let's uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We are going to pick up in verse 7, and before we do so, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. So we are worshiping you, just listening to the lyrics that are coming out of my heart and coming out of my mouth. Lord, that confession of here I am, I surrender all to you. In perfect recognition, Lord, that I know that I don't. I know that I hold back. I know that I fear. I know that I quake. Yet the true desire of my heart, Lord, is to surrender all to you. I'm weak in that surrendering. I fail in that surrendering, in that yielding to you. Yet, Lord, you're patient and you're gracious and you're merciful and you're loving and you're caring and you're chastening and you're directing. You don't leave me behind. You don't throw up your hands in exasperation towards me, Lord. That you love and you care for me as your creature that you have made in your image. I, we together, Lord, we are the object of your love through your Son, humbling. We're grateful, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us. We're grateful that you've given us your word. We're grateful that you've given us one another as brothers and sisters in this life. We're grateful for your promises. We're grateful and thankful, Lord, that we can worship you, that we can serve you. Lord, that our lives have meaning in you. Speak to us this morning through your word, through your spirit, through one another, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So because we're going to finish Hebrews, just overall context, when you sit in this letter, in this document, it's being written to Jewish believers in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And for them, in the very beginning of this, this idea that God has spoken in various times, in various ways, through various individuals in times past, the culture for the Jews, that's, that's, that's a given for them. God has spoken through the prophets. He spoke through Moses. They didn't have a problem with that, but they're remembering that God has spoken to us through his son in these last days. And this entire letter, it's an encouragement, it's an exhortation, because in their culture, as Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, they're feeling a pressure to return back to what's comfortable, to turn back to their religion that they were raised with. They're feeling the pressure of the culture to do so. Um, and as they're turning away, ultimately, from Jesus and back into the law, all these warnings are coming up in their lives, in their community, and that's the reason that this letter is being written, to remind them and to remind us that Jesus is better. His voice is superior to the voice of angels. Because God used angels to communicate his word in times past. Jesus' voice is superior. 
God used Moses' voice, a voice of man, to speak his law to his people. Jesus' voice is better than Moses' voice. Even though Moses is communicating, the angels are communicating the very word of God, yes? But we're told in the New Testament that law, the, the regulations, as God is revealing himself, as he is calling a people to himself, as he is segregating them to his plans, his purpose, his witness in life, he gave them rules, he gave them laws for them to abide by. He gave them covenants and promises. And they broke those covenants and they broke those promises. And again, God revealing to them, revealing to us just how dark this heart truly is. Even though the Jews are naming the name of the true and living God, not an idol, they still struggled in their relationship with God. Even though we name the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that we have been given whereby we must be saved, Jesus' name means he saves he because he will save his people from their sins. We struggle in this. I was talking to, I was talking to uh, just a... Uh, the guy here, but as we sit in a Jewish context, and today the Jews, they don't have a temple. They don't have sacrifices. They don't have the Old Testament system that they were instructed uh, uh, that would appease and atone for their sins. So they're left today with just the remnants of ideas in the Day of Atonement rather than focusing on this sacrifice that cleanses the culture as a whole. They're left with just this individual relationship with God that hopefully in the past year my good has outweighed my bad. And if it hasn't, then maybe I'll do better next year. I read, I read an article this week, a lady's response, a Jewish believer, uh, not in Jesus, but just a this gal, she said that uh, the Judaism is essentially, even though there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, not everybody can obey all of those laws. Therefore, we just obey the laws that we can obey. And, you know, we just kind of, if we can't obey all of them, then we'll just focus on the ones that we can and then we're all right. But here in the relationship with Jesus Christ, we're looking to our God who has become a man who gave us his voice, his teaching, who spoke truth, who spoke through the power of the Spirit, all of his, all the works that he was doing, the miracles that he was performing, providing testimony to the reality of who he was, ultimately to what he did on the cross, his resurrection, bearing witness and testimony to all of that, reminding ourselves, again, as often as we come together, we're reminding ourselves of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, the power of his resurrection, why we believe in him, why his voice is stronger than the voice of our heart, our mind, our culture, any church, any leader. That's the, that's the conversation that is going on throughout this entire letter to the Hebrews. And last week, we're sitting in this incredible promise in verse 5 of chapter 13. God himself, his voice has said, I will never, never leave you behind. No, I will never, never, never abandon you. And how do we respond? We respond with a bold voice declaring that the Lord, Yahweh, he's my helper. Therefore, I will not fear in this life. What can man do to me? And again, in the context of this, man is attempting to do much to this community's relationship with Jesus Christ in driving them away. And the exhortation is to keep your eyes on Jesus. 
fix your eyes and your attention on Jesus and all of those things. Now in verse 7, and again, these are all concluding subject matter, concluding comments to this letter. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And this last, this last message in Hebrews I've titled Established. Because look, this word established, it's the idea of being settled. Um, when you think about a foundation of a building that's been established, uh, the, the ground has been leveled, there is a strong foundation, it's settled, it's not going to move, the, the structure is secure, um, and that's the idea of this word established. You were settled by your works. I think you were settled by the grace of God. I may be weak, but his spirit's strong. I have failed. I may fail again. But he's still in me. He still loves me. His grace that has been given to me is not a conditional attribute. It's not a conditional gift. It's something that he has freely given to each one of us as we approach him through faith in his son and in his son's sacrifice. Listen to this. You are established, settled by grace. And all the storms of your life and all the pains and the trials that you go through and all the struggles and all of your, and your striving with God and all your striving with and against man and all, your, and all the spiritual warfare that we deal with every single day, day in and day out, God's attitude, your relationship with God, is, it's established, it's firm, it's fixed, it's settled, it's done through faith in Jesus Christ. We are established by grace. Why this is so important in this context, listen, he's reminding them in verse 7, remember, be mindful of those who rule over you, literally those who are leading, those who are going before you. So here, in context, the exhortation is, you all out there need to remember and to listen to me as a leader. And not just to me, but to the other men and the women that, that the Lord has placed into that role in the congregation here, in the community, and whatever that looks like. But why? What's the, what's the purpose? Here, it's those who have spoken the word of God to you whose faith follow. So Jesus, is, listen, this is so important. Jesus is the only one who can say, follow me. So when we sit in the Gospels and Jesus is looking at Peter, he's looking at Andrew, he's looking at John and the other disciples as he's approaching them and he says, follow me, only Jesus can say those words. We can say the same words as Paul of follow me as I follow Jesus. But in your your following, in your listening, in your remembering of the things that I say or other teachers say in regards to the word of God, there's an imitation of my own faith. And again, what, what, is this, what, is, what does faith look like? One, um, I used not to be 
the Lord's. I used to be just an image of the culture. I'm a human being who has responded to the gospel in all of its fullness. And who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, I responded to him in, in submission, in cleansing, in God, I can't believe you love me and I can't believe that you've forgiven me. I love you. I want my life to be yours. I want to have a, w- a wonderful relationship with my wife. I want to be a good dad. I want, to, I want to participate in this community. I want what you want in my life. I've surrendered to that. And over the past 20 years, that's looked different as I have followed Christ. I've sat under the teaching of of different men, from men's Bible study to being in the sanctuary. In that, look at, again, look at verse 7. What? People that have spoken the word of God to me. And this is where as we start talking about being established by grace, it is only through the word of God that we understand grace. We are established by grace through the teaching and the preaching and the daily sitting in this text from Genesis to Revelation. So if I, I personally have sat under teachers as these men have been following the Lord. I have followed their faith and following their example and, and their teachings and those kinds of things. I've raised up my hand just like Isaiah and said, here my Lord, send me. I don't know what that looks like in my life. But here my send me, and that's led me to where I am today. I have, a, I have a finance degree by education. I am an accountant by profession. I don't have a theology degree. I'm not, I'm not. I didn't go to school for this. All I am is a human being who is engrossed in this word because this word tells me about my God and who he is. And it captures my attention every single day. He captures my heart. He speaks to me. When I enter into a context like this this morning, this is why we teach verse by verse through the word. This is why as often as we gather together, we open up this document and this text so that you and I together that we would be established continually by God's grace. As we step in, and you guys have had your own experiences, I've had my experiences. Um, My wife and I often say that Calvary Chapel has messed us up to any other kind of like church order and church structure. Because when I gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I sing and I worship together, and then I sit down, I want somebody to open up the word and teach. Tell me what the word of God says. I don't care about your personality. I don't care about your age. I don't care if you're cool. I don't care if you're, if you're motivational. Or I don't care what your personality looks like. But open the word of God to me. Teach me about his grace. Teach me about his love. Teach me truth. I don't need self-help. I don't need you to tell me how to be a husband. I don't need you to tell me how to be a father. I don't need you to tell me how to be an employer. Because the, the word of God is what teaches me all of these things. So as a teacher stands and they open up the Bible to you, or you sit in a, in a home study or in a Bible study, whatever that looks like, as you open up the word together, You'll understand who God is as you travel through the word over time. He'll give you the life experiences. He'll give you the passages. He'll give you the understanding. The Holy Spirit himself is our teacher. 
I don't come up here to give you my personality. I want to leave you with the flavor of Jesus Christ in your mind, in your heart, in your ears, and in your lives as we leave here this morning and every single week. I don't care if you think I'm cool. I don't care if you don't like the way that I teach or you do like the way that I teach. As long as you'll listen to what the word of God has to say. It's not boring. It is alive. There are a thousand other people in this community that can teach the word of God better than I can. There's a thousand other worship teams that can worship God and and rile us up in in a way better than we can. We do everything that we can to the best of our abilities as the Lord empowers us and he leads us. We do the best that we can with what he places into our hands. But again, the the emphasis, the focus is always that Jesus is better. So as we are mindful of those who are leading, who are going before, whether you're looking at me, whether you're looking at somebody else in your life, it's we're only following other human beings as they are following Jesus Christ. Never, ever follow a human being who is not speaking out of the word of God to you. Somebody who is speaking a worldly philosophy out of another person's book, whatever it may be, if they're giving you advice, if they're attempting to lead you, if they're attempting to direct you, and if it's through any other source other than the word of God, stop following that individual. Stop following their teachings and look to those who have a grounded, established faith in Jesus Christ through his grace, through the truth of his word. And that when we come together and we're speaking about Jesus, we are speaking out of the word of God, giving a sense to it, giving it an understanding to it. And again, always in the, in, the, in the life of a human being, we're watching the outcome of their conduct, the outcome of their faith. That's why we spent so long in, in Hebrews 11 looking at what faith has looked like in the lives of people in Genesis. Um, I often say that it's, if you're going like really, really to study somebody else's teaching, it's, it's advisable to sit in the teaching of somebody who's been doing it for a long time, to sit in the, the teaching of somebody who may be dead already, whose faith stood the test of time. Because there's often the people that are popular in the culture that are teaching things that are itching to the ears of people. Often, not always, not even most of the time, but we often see those teachings fail. We watch those people fall in different ways in their conduct. And the whole, the, the thrust of what's going on here is Jesus Our Lord, our Messiah, our God who became man, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the God who is present. He is the God who was eternally in the past, outside of time. He is the one who is going to be forevermore. He is the self-existent one. The theological term for this statement in regards to Jesus is he is immutable. He is unchanging. And if Jesus is unchanging, that means what the word of God says in Genesis, what it says in Joshua, what it says in Isaiah, what it says in Malachi, what it says in Matthew, what it says to the Corinthians, what it says in Revelation, is consistent voice of Jesus, the one who does not change. The doctrine doesn't change. The teaching doesn't change. The revelation, there's, there may be an unveiling. There may be a revealing. That's what the word revelation means. 
But he does not change. His teachings do not change. Therefore, don't be carried about with all these weird and strange foreign teachings and doctrines. These things blow through cultures. They blow through the church in different times in different ways throughout the last 2,000 years. They blow through our congregations today where it's, it's looking to the law. It's looking to, well, if you really want to have a close relationship with Jesus, here's the A, Bs, and Cs that you need to do with us. We see this all the time. And again, it's, it's men collecting human beings to be their followers rather than men and women proclaiming the word of God and the word of God alone so that people will follow Jesus Christ in faith, their hearts being grounded and established by grace. Hold your place here and turn to Jeremiah 31. This has already been quoted a couple of times in the book of Hebrews. As it talks about our hearts, our inward parts being established by his grace. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And notice this, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, the northern and the southern tribes. And God's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant and he says in verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So think about this in context. God's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, because the old covenant they have broken continually. Jeremiah is sitting in a time when the Babylonians are coming as uh, the chastening rod of the Lord, so to say. Brutal time because they broke the covenants. And God's promise for the future, verse 33, says this is the covenant. The promise, this is, this is what God is entering into with us, that I... Will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The grace of God being written upon our hearts. Our hearts being established by the grace of God. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them, notice this, to the greatest of them. Doesn't matter what your position is in the body of Christ, what title you have before or after your name. Doesn't matter whether you're low or high in your community. Regardless, to the least of them, to the greatest of them, they shall know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. If you know the Old Testament, if you know what is going on in Jeremiah's time, to have this being declared from the Lord, powerful. 
We're going to read through this because it's going to come up in context back in Hebrews. So verse 35 says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation from before me forever. Which, in other words, that shall never happen. Thus says the Lord, if heaven can, above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. And that is impossible. God will never cast off. Israel. The Lord is not done with the nation of Israel. You can sit in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Us as believers in Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, we are being grafted into this community. Again, sit in Romans for that context. Verse 38, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord. And this city is ultimately the new Jerusalem. It says, for the tower, uh, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the surveyor's line shall extend straight forward over the hill. Garib gives all these little lists and, uh, you know, this area is going to be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. This gets back into context. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Our heart's established by grace. It's not established by your food. It's not established by your religious rituals. Um, it's not established by your works. Our hearts, our inner, our inner being is established by the new covenant God has promised. To forgive us of our sins, to remove them as far as the east is from the west, through the sacrifice of his son. This is, this is where we are settled. This is where we are secure. It is by the grace of God, not by any kind of works. Verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The one that we just read about, Jeremiah. Therefore, by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, our God is well pleased. So in our hearts being established by grace, not only is that through the word of God, it is also through this altar that we have. Now this is, a, you have to, you have to have, an Old Testament perspective and understanding to even know what's going on here. Remember, this is being written to Jewish believers. So the ideas that are here are very familiar to them. Um, this is part of their culture. We have to sit there and study. We got to read history books to understand Leviticus. So what's being described here is the sacrifice for sin in the community. 
So there's, there's different kinds of sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament. The one that's being described here is a sacrifice for sin. It also carries with it the idea it's a sacrifice for purification, for the community to be purified. This animal, as it was sacrificed, its blood is being, it's being sprinkled in different places. It's ultimately, it's, the blood is taken into the tabernacle. It is sprinkled before this altar of incense that is before the veil. Behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of God where God said that he was going to meet with the people that the high priest one time per year could go into there on the Day of Atonement. And again, this is what much of the earlier document is being written. And here's, here's the idea, that we have an altar that we can approach, that those who are attempting to approach God through the law, through the Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial system, we have a law to approach God, we have a altar to approach God through that they don't have the right to, that they don't have the power to because they're in the old system, the old covenant, not the new covenant. So when we talk about the altar, this is the altar. So how many of you have heard of an altar call? It's a more modern concept within the church. The idea of an altar call is come to the altar, come to Jesus, come in confession, come and get cleansed, come as a believer, come for prayer, come to the altar of Christ. And this is the passage where this idea is coming from. But we have an altar. In the Old Testament, again, outside of, you know, when we sat in Genesis, the altars were to be built of what? ornately crafted rocks and gold and gilded and all that. No, it's supposed to be unhewn rocks stacked. But when we talk about the altar today in a church context, we're talking about communion. Because whose body was on the altar? The altar that we have that we're talking about in Hebrews, it's the cross. Go outside of Jerusalem, go outside of the camp, Go outside of the temple, go outside of your religion, go outside of your community, go outside of the persecution, go outside of the camp to the altar that you have where your sins and my sins are removed from us. So all of this that we have before us, it's symbolic. We come to this table, which we could call an altar, and if you have any kind of more of a liturgical church background, usually there's, there's a table up front that they're calling the altar, and what's on the table? The elements that represent the body of Christ, whose body was on the altar of the cross, being sacrificed for the sins of all humanity. So that as often as we gather together, communion is not just some religious ritual that we do, we are coming to the altar, and we are looking to the body of Christ. His body is food indeed, given for us, broken for us. Our God who became, took on this flesh, broken for us, given for us as a sacrifice. His blood is drink indeed. It symbolizes the new covenant that we just read in Jeremiah 31. That if you're hungry and you're thirsty for righteousness, for salvation, for the power to live life, for victory over sin, for purpose in life and direction in life, come to the altar. And again, it is not a physical place. It's going to your God 
who created you in prayer through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That as we come together, we're not here to remember Calvary Chapel doctrine. We're not here to remember anything about the history here. We're not coming here to remember and learn anything about me or about you. We are here pointing each other to the one who gives us life. In our weaknesses, in all of our our failures, we are gathered here to pray. Listen to the rest of this text. As we come to the altar, as we go outside of the camp, and here the idea is getting outside of the city of Jerusalem because that city, Jerusalem, it's occupied by the Romans at this time. We believe that from what's going on in the text that this is being described in the present tense, that sacrifices are still going on in the temple at the time that this letter was written. But we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Since 70 A.D., there have been no sacrifices. But here, it's get outside of your culture, all the pressures to remain. Let us go forth to him. Go forth to Jesus. Go out the camp, bearing his reproach, bearing his reviling. And what, is it, what are the sacrifices that we offer to God? Continually, present tense. Your, what we just did earlier in singing to God, singing his praise, his exaltation, singing about his name, singing about his nature, who he is, what he's done, singing praise to God is a sacrifice to him. It's so easy to do when your heart is in the right place. When you're attentive to who God is, to what it is that he's done, his love for you, his grace towards you, sacrifice of praise is so easy. It's also extremely difficult when you feel like God is persecuting you and you feel like he's abandoning you. You feel like he's not answering you. You feel like he's not speaking to you. It becomes this true cost to continue in those moments where, God, I don't understand, but I love you and I trust you. I believe your word, so I will praise you. This is the fruit, the product of our lips. What a privilege we have rather than speaking cuss words, speaking vulgarities, speaking hatred, speaking perversions, that we can use our lips to speak the praise of God. We sat in this a lot lot last week, giving thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His mercy endures forever. Giving thanks to his name. This idea, don't forget. So this, this walking, this following, we are not just here to sing. We are just not here to study. This is a, a faith of action. Don't forget to do good. Don't forget to do what's right. Don't forget to do what he's told you to do. Don't forget to look to him in those activities. So no, you were not saved by the law. You were saved by grace. You were established by grace. But in that position of grace, we seek to do good. We seek to share, to fellowship, to participate in one another's lives. And we're told that these sacrifices, this is what is well-pleasing to the Lord. At the end of chapter 12, it says, let us have grace, right? Established by this grace, let us have this grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Same thing, being well-pleasing to our God. Verse 17, here's, here's context of the, the flow of thought here. 
It's always keep looking at Jesus. Jesus is superior. Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is the one who we are following. As we are following Jesus, it is very clear that he calls certain individuals. He places each individual in the body of Christ where he desires them to be. And those he has appointed, there are many that he has appointed to rule, to lead. This leading, it's not to look like the way of the world. That we could sit in all kinds of leadership books that look like the way that the world leads. At the same time, there, there is uh, a... a just a treasure trove of books out there that we can sit in that teach us how to lead like Jesus. How to go before other human beings as Jesus um, would have us. The idea of obedience here in verse 17, it's being convinced that as I sit here, as I teach, as, as others teach, are you convinced that the word of God is the word of God, that the word of God is true? This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus said. This is what he is directing me to do with my life. That's this idea of obedience, being convinced. And out of that conviction that you're moving, that you're being affected by it, that your life is changing by what you're being instructed in and being submissive, yielding. Not being proud, not being puffed up. Again, in, in all of this, especially with the leaders, uh, so many leaders can be so abusive. Um, the idea that Jesus teaches us as leaders, we're not to, uh, to lead like the world leads. Uh, but if you want to be great in his kingdom, then we need to seek to be the least. If he has called us to lead, then we are to be as the younger, not to the elder. Jesus himself was, uh, he was among us as a servant. And this is the heart that he uh, desires and demands in those that are leading and proclaiming the word on his behalf. Why? Because they're watching out without sleep for your souls as those who must give account. This is why I have a, this is a very serious um, responsibility in my life. Like I'm, I'm uh, I can be humorous and flippant and all those kinds of things while not doing what I'm doing right now, but I don't, I don't like being comedic up here at all. I don't like being flippant. I don't like being crass. I don't, like this is very heavy to me. This is the most important thing in life to me in regards to my own relationship with God. Not only that I'd follow him well in my personal relationship, not only that I'd be a good husband and a good father as he's appointing me and changing me and leading me in, but I know the words that I am speaking right now, I will give an account to the Almighty God for my words. And that's what the word account means. I will give God words for the words that I speak. That's heavy. God is forgiving. God is gracious. I can't believe some of the things that I've said up here. Other things that I've said, it's, man, that was totally of the Lord. That was awesome. But I will give an account for the stewardship that God has called me to in this role that he's called me to, just like you will give an account to him for your life. But those who lead, they must give accounts. Let them do so for joy and not without grief. This idea of grief, it's being squeezed. You're groaning and complaining. Um, I am absolutely humbled that this is what I get to do with my life. 
At the same time, this is the hardest thing in life to do. Um, the average pastor lasts five years before they go find a different job because of the difficulties. Um, this is a, a role that I've watched from the outside. Others perform thinking that I knew it all and uh, could tell them exactly how to do their job. And then I sit in this role myself and understand the, uh, the gravity of it, the weight of it, the spiritual conflict that's associated with it, the wrestlings of the flesh. Uh, it, it's, this, is, this is no joke for me. But in the no joke, this is... This is I have, just like I'm settled in grace, I am settled in joy. And I would rather do nothing in this life than continue to serve my Lord in whatever role that he sets before me alongside my wonderful wife who is called to do the same thing. I love it. I don't do this groaning and complaining. One of the, one of the standard pastor's jokes is, uh, you know, how's the church going? Oh, church is great other than the people. you don't love people, man, this is, the, this is the wrong thing to be doing with life. It's very easy to groan and complain about all the things that are wrong and that are off and why this and why that. It's not what we're supposed to be focused on, keeping our eyes on Jesus. It would be unprofitable for you if I was a groaner and complainer and was beating Jesus' sheep. Now, as we're established by grace, we're established by grace through his word. We are established by grace through the altar of Jesus' cross, his sacrifice. Verse 18, pray for me. There's people in the back right now praying for me. And I know that you pray for me because you tell me often that you're praying for me. But here in context, pray for us. We are confident. It's the exact same word as obey in verse 17. We're convinced that we have a good conscience. Our mind is clear in all things, desiring to live honorably, good and right before men and women and before God. I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So whoever is the writer of Hebrews, whether it was the Apostle Paul or somebody else, there's something that is hindering them from being restored back to this community. And he is asking them to be praying and through the prayer for him, and not just for him, but for us, it's plural, that they would be restored, that God would hear and answer that prayer. Not only is it praying for me, praying for leadership, praying for those that rule, praying for those that are going before. We'll see this in context. I need to be praying for you. And this is where we've ended often in Hebrews as we close out the services. Now may the God of peace Remember back in chapter 12, peace is something that we are pursuing and that we are chasing. Ultimately, we are pursuing and chasing the things of God, his attributes. Now may the God of peace, Jesus himself being peace personified, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. What does that mean? Resurrection. And here's the main idea. That great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen 
Look at that title there, that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. This is where we get the word pastor from. There's only one time, and it's in Ephesians 4, where it's talked about that Jesus has given gifts. He's given this gift of being a pastor teacher to the church for the building up of the church, for the equipping of the saints so that you, through the preaching and through the teaching of his word, through what it means to be a pastor in regards to tending, feeding, caring, guarding, protecting, these different ideas that revolve around what it means to be a shepherd. Again, in, the, in not just the Old Testament, but in ancient cultures, often a king would be referred to as a shepherd. Jesus ultimately being the great shepherd, pointing us to, again, get your eyes back on Jesus. Not, on, not your eyes on those men and women that may be leading you in different contexts. Yes, we need to remember. Yes, we need to follow their faith as they're following Jesus Christ. But ultimately, who's the shepherd? Jesus is the shepherd. At the end of John, chapter 20, or chapter 21, when Jesus is talking to Peter, what does he tell Peter to do? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. How? This is, this is Peter's only instruction manual. This is my only instruction manual. Peter, feed him my word. Tell him what I said. Tell him what I did. Protect him from lies. Protect him from false doctrines. Care for them. Tend them. Ultimately, it's feed them truth, feed them my word. Keep directing them to me. Keep my job is to, re to direct you to the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is Pastor Jesus. And again, we've sat, on, sat in this. It's through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This idea that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. This was his plan from the very beginning. Through his blood, we have life. Through his blood, we have cleansing. Through his blood, we have forgiveness. All the images associated with his blood, his sacrifice, images for us, this everlasting covenant. And the truth of the power of this everlasting covenant is his resurrection from the dead. And it's through this God, it's through his resurrection, it's through following our pastor, it's through his promise that he's given to us, that he is making us complete to do good works according to his will. Not good works for salvation, but just doing what he's directing us to do in life. He's working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight through his son, through our relationship with him. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words in brevity. So this entire letter, this is, this is a sermon. It is a word of comfort. It is a word of exhortation. It is a word of reminder. And if we were to sit... And again, this letter, as it's being initially introduced to the congregation that it's going to, to the community that it's going to, it would have been read verbatim, word for word, to the people. And then many would be scratching heads, 
Some of them would press into the image and the exhortation very easily. Others would not. We see this in Nehemiah, that as we stand and we teach the word, then we also give the meaning and understanding. This is what's being said. This is why it's being said. And the word of God, ultimately, it's an exhortation to us. It's a comfort. It's an encouragement. It's a consolation. Yes, you're weak. Yeah, you're going to die. But look at who God is. Look at why all this is going on. Keep your eyes on him. He is better. Live for him. Final words here, 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see, uh, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. So those who, you know, the elders, deacons, bishops, pastors, whatever title you want to place there. Greet those who are there serving in your midst. Greet all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. So either this letter was being written from Italy and there's a group of believers there that are giving their greeting to um, wherever this letter is going to or... It's those who are of Italy want to greet those in Italy where the letter is being sent. And um, we have no idea where this letter was written from, who wrote it, uh, but we do clearly know the context. And it's final words. Grace, grace, be with you all. Amen. Amen. Worship team, come on up. This is, we continue to worship, it's, it is always a time to, to sit in what the Lord has been speaking to you through his word, what he's speaking to you through, his, through your context and your relationship with him, what he's speaking to you, what you've heard this morning, um, but to sit in response. This idea that we're grounded, that we are established in his grace is so important. Because as we were singing earlier, we're all weak. We're all failures. We all mess up. We all turn our back on the Lord. We all look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Lord, why do I keep, you know, just all those kinds of emotions. Like we all sit in that. And again, the reminder, the exhortation of God's word God has spoken in times past. Sit in his voice. God has spoken through, to you, to all of us, through his son. Make sure that you're elevating his voice above all other voices that you're listening to every day. This world is lying to you. The enemy is lying to you. Your, your flesh is lying to you. Sit in the word of exhortation and the words of comfort. Our God is a God of comfort. Our God has come to you through his grace. Our God has given his son to you through his grace. Our God abides in you through faith in Jesus Christ through his grace. Our God leads you day in and day out through his grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. There's no work that you can perform Nothing you can do for God is going to make him love you more or love you less. Stand. Be as, take hold of his grace. Be established in it. And from that position of grace, that grace that you're holding on to, worship him. Come to the altar. Remember, serve him. Whatever he's leading you to do through grace, hold on to it. Our God is a gracious God.
Let's worship.